Uh, well, Scott Holly got us kicked off last Sunday back into our study in Romans. Uh, I'm going to uh, start us off on chapter 3. So we are going lightning speed through the book of Romans. We're already up to chapter 3, about eight months into this deal. Uh, and we will, we will be at it for a while. We're not going to rush through Romans. I said that in the, in the early service. The worst thing I could do is speed us through this book of Scripture. We're going to take our time and uh, just dig into it as, as the Lord allows. And so, uh, Lord willing, for about the next four Sundays, we will be in Romans chapter 3. So let me invite you during the week when you're having your quiet time or your time in reading the Word, flip to that chapter and just read it. And just read it every day and get familiar with it. The sermons will be, uh, I think, a little bit more practical and helpful for you if you're studying that particular passage of Scripture. Uh, so in just a minute, I'm going to read the first eight verses of Romans 3. But last April, I was coming home from a meeting in Kansas City, and it was on a Saturday. It was the last Saturday in April. And as I've driven from Kansas City to St. Louis, it's been pouring down rain the entire time, not just kind of sprinkling on and off, but I mean a hard, steady rain the entire way back, which if anybody likes to travel by car, which I do, that makes it miserable. It's just not any fun. You're squinting to see how far the cars are in front of you, and it was just, it was just a mess. But I get back to St. Louis County. I'm coming in on Highway 40, and the rain stops. It doesn't clear off. It's still really cloudy and really dark, but there's no precipitation coming down. I come to 40 and 270, and I turn right, and I'm coming down into Kirkwood. I'm coming south on 270, and that sky is like that eerie green gray color, and it's real still, <laughs> and the traffic is slowing down a lot, and as I look over at the West County Mall, I look in the air, and literally there's a funnel cloud beginning to take shape over the West County Mall. Some of you that live on the north side of Kirkwood, remember this because you had a lot of branches knocked down in your yard. I don't know if the, it ever really got to a full tornado at that point, but it did some damage uh, in this area. So I, I do what everybody else on 270 is doing. I get on the phone, and I call home, and I get Cindy on the phone. I've been, I've been gone for a day and a half. I'm like, where are you, and what are you doing? And uh, she says, I'm just sitting upstairs uh, reading a book. I said, I'm driving down 270. I'm looking at a tornado not more than two miles from our house. Get up and go in the basement right now. To which she responds, this wonderfully intelligent, beautiful woman who I adore says, I don't hear any sirens going off. (laughs) (laughs) To which I respond in a really loud voice. I won't say it as loud as I, as I'm watching the tornado, get in the basement right now, go. To which she responds, well, you don't have to yell at me. And apparently I do. (laughs) I'm looking at the tornado. So I think eventually she may have gone in the basement. By the time I I got home, I think they they were all down there. Um, And I'm not, I'm not poking, I am poking fun of my wife a little bit. But, you know, have you ever had a feeling where, you know, you should have been grateful for the message I delivered? And instead you're kind of finding fault in the way in which I, the way in which I delivered it. I think maybe you missed the point. What's your reaction to unwelcomed news? What's your reaction when the tornadoes of life kind of hit close to home and somebody uh, brings up a touchy subject? What even if it's, if it's personal? What if somebody's actually kind of calling you on the carpet for a flaw in your life? I mean, this wasn't that particular situation. I was just trying to, try and, you know, warn her that the bad weather was in the area. But what happens in your heart, in my heart, when somebody comes and says, you know, I got a real problem with the way in which you, you treated me? Or, or the manner in which you spoke to so-and-so? How do we react when we're confronted with the um, less than admirable traits in our lives? The Apostle Paul in chapters 1 and 2 of Romans has been painting a less than flattering picture 
of the human race. Paul is trying to speak very honestly and directly to us about our true human condition. I'm not going to put these verses on the board uh, right now or on the screen, but I am going to read just about three or four verses out of the end of chapter 1 of Romans to refresh your memory as to Paul's assessment inspired by the Holy Spirit of the human race. And, And here's what he says. Filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. I just saw that again this morning for the first time. You know, you got a patent. Anybody ever put out a patent on anything? I just have a patent. Oh, I got a new way to do evil. (laughs) I've just invented a new evil. I mean, this is not a really flattering list. Disobedient to their parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now, last week, Scott Holly built on that just a bit, and he, and he confronted us through the end of chapter 2 with our religiosity, with playing at faith but not really believing. And Paul in chapter 2 says, you know, it's not enough just to be identified with the kingdom of God if your heart isn't in the right place. It's not about your national identity or your heritage as being Jewish, nor is it about uh, your disingenuous religious activity. And I hear that and I go, ouch, (laughs) that doesn't feel very good. I don't like that. What is our reaction? What's your reaction and mine? when we're confronted with the truth of Scripture that says, you know what, we really do have a serious problem on our hands. Well, in Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, Paul is going to use a rhetorical question methodology. Now, a rhetorical question is a question you ask, you already know the answer to. And you're not asking a question, you're making a point. And what Paul is going to do in chapter 3, and again pretty significantly in chapter 6, we'll see this repeat itself uh, over and over again, is he's anticipating objections that people have to what he's saying. So Paul has said, you know what? The world is really messed up. To be specific, mankind, the human race, is really filled with evil and all manner of destructive behavior. And to be specific, you and I have that nature within us. That's the reason why Paul gives the information and he anticipates our reaction being, you know, Paul, I don't really like that too much. Uh, couldn't we just say that we're really pretty good, but we mess up every once in a while? And so Paul anticipates our objections. And the questions are given not to, not to uh, uh, elicit an answer on our part, to answer the question, but really to, condem- to, to test the condition of our heart. Am I willing to hear and accept the confrontational nature of the gospel? Or am I going to reject it by questioning the character of God? In these eight verses, Paul reaffirms God's righteousness. And he gives you and me a chance to assess our true spiritual condition. So with that in mind, Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Hear the word of God. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, and he quotes out of the Psalms, that you may be justified in your words and prevail 
when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath upon us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why do e- and why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray for just a moment. Father, we have worshipped you with our, our voices this morning as we have sung the glory of Jesus. What can wash away our sins? Only his righteousness, only his blood. We have sung of your goodness and your truth. And Lord, those, those lyrics are wonderful and, and they're a joy to sing. And the worship band does a wonderful job of presenting the opportunity for us to, to lift our voices to you. Father, it's good and it's right to worship you with our emotions, the type of emotions that singing bring out. But Father, now we want to worship you with our minds and our intellect as well. We've been called to worship you with every facet of our being. And we pray now, Father, that that, that we would see this time in your word as an opportunity for us to, to offer back to you the worship of our minds, asking that you would teach us, that you would instruct us. Whether we know you from afar whether we're not sure that you even exist or whether we have an intimate relationship with you, Father. Each one of us in this room needs to hear your truth. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would speak to us this morning. My words are not important. They carry no weight. Father, you know my sin. I pray that you would forgive me, that I wouldn't stand in the way of your message today. Lord Jesus, come. Let us sit at your feet. Would you teach your people? We pray in your name. Amen. Uh, we're going to look at this passage and, and the four objections that Paul kind of raises in, in rhetorical question format. Uh, Paul is anticipating that we're going to have a less than positive response when we're called on the carpet to our sin. And we're going to try to find ways to deflect the responsibility. We're going to try and find a way to, to shift the blame off of our shoulders and onto someone else. Now, you probably never do that. You're probably always quick to repent. You're probably always very fast to raise your hand and say, you're right, I'm guilty, I'm wrong, would you please forgive me? So just bear with me as I preach the sermon to myself and, and look at some of the objections that I, that I raise uh, in my own uh, kind of uh, unwillingness to see my, uh, my, my stuff for what it is. Uh, the first objection I'm going to call the I was misled objection. I was misled. Look at verses 1 and 2. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? And then Paul says, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, if you're a Jewish reader and, you're, and also a disciple of Jesus and you're, and you're reading Paul's words, or if you're, you're a Jewish uh, person and you're reading Paul's words outside of a relationship with Christ, you may feel the, uh, the desire to defend yourself uh, and accuse God of kind of a bait and switch tactic, so to speak. Um, you might think along the lines of, you know, wait a minute, I'm a child of Abraham. I, I belong to the, the nation of promise. Uh, all, of, all of the Old Testament speaks of God's Messiah and his restoring his relationship with, with the mankind coming through the people of Israel. I am one of the chosen ones simply by right of birth, simply by national identity. And that puts me in good standing with God. 
And now, Paul, you said in, in, in these first words that I've read in Romans that, that the Jews know better off than the Gentile, that, that I am just as unclean as, as, as the, the, the goyim, the, the outsider that doesn't have your law, that doesn't have your truth, that doesn't have your promises. What good is it then to be a Jew? Why should I bother to be circumcised? There seems to be no value here whatsoever. God, it seems that, that you've kind of done a bait and switch here. You promised one thing, but it appears that there was something completely different. Now I learned that, that my heritage is of no advantage to me. You can see kind of the frustration that, that they think maybe uh, they've, they've, been, uh, they've been promised something and now given something else. You ever had that experience? You ever been like at a car dealership and you thought you had the price and then ended up actually being a different price? That could be a really frustrating experience. Uh, I took Jordan back to college, and we were in South Alabama a week ago Friday, and it was really warm, about 65 degrees, so we went to play golf. And I kind of scoped it out and got on the Internet and found a golf course, and I, and, I, and I went to the one that said winter rates. That's cheap. I like that, winter rates. So I go to the winter rates, really great golf course, $45 a player. So we show up to play, and I, and I give him my $90 because never dawned on my college son that he might want to think about paying for his golf, but that's a story for another day. And... Uh, and so I give him the 90 bucks, and the guy says, that'll be $138. So what? And I said, what? In a way that the other two people that were working behind the counter that weren't waiting on me looked up. <laughs> so it wasn't a pleasant what. <laughs> and I said, uh, on the website, it said $45 a player. So there's my $90. And last time I looked, 45 and 45 is 90, not 138. Not that I would ever be sarcastic as a pastor or man of the cloth. And... Uh, and the woman, who was clearly the manager, she wasn't waiting on me, but she was clearly the manager. She turned and said, you know, sir, we get that a lot. The web page has the winter rates, but if you scroll down and you look below that, you know, you'll see that there's a fee for the golf carts. And to which I very graciously responded, well, in Missouri, we just tell you exactly what the price is, and we don't try to hide it. So I guess we're just kind of different than you guys in Alabama. But by the way, Jesus loves you. So you see what a gracious man your, your pastor is. <laughs> But nobody likes thinking it's one thing and finding out it's something else. I went to the Sprint store a week ago. I said, I don't care if you have to keep this phone a week. Just tell me that when I come back, it'll be ready. And if you say an hour and I come back and it's not ready in an hour, I'm really going to be sad. And they're like, oh, I know that. So come back in an hour and a half. Come back in an hour and a half. Six hours later, my phone was ready. And the manager, as I'm walking out, said, you know, you're going to get a call from Sprint. I hope you'll give us a, an A-plus on our report when, on customer, customer service. I told him Jesus loved him too. <laughs> and a couple other things that really aren't important. But the idea of, wait a minute, this, you said one thing or something else. Paul's anticipating that's a question. He's also anticipating that we're going to use that as a question to let ourselves off the hook. And to say, well, well, if that's not right, then God's flawed somehow, and it's not my fault, it's his. And Paul says, nonsense. Paul says, take a look. The Old Testament Jewish people had the very word of God. They have the oracles of God. Go back and read if that's your objection. Where does it say that bloodline is the deciding factor? Read the Torah, read the prophets, read the wisdom literature, read even the historical books. They all point to faith as our relationship with God. And so the objection of I was misled really ultimately carries no water. The second objection is what I'm going to call the faulty planning objection. Look at verses 3 and 4. What if some were 
uh, some were unfaithful. Some of the, the folks, the, the people of God, the Old Testament Jewish folks. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. The, the faulty planning objection goes something like this. Well, the Old Testament Jews had God's word. That's right. Well, we see that very clearly. But they were unfaithful. And if they were unfaithful, doesn't that mean that God's plan has failed? Doesn't it mean that, that God didn't set it up the right way? Don't you, don't you set it up for success? Don't you lay out a plan, God, that lets everybody put their best foot forward and succeed? God, if your plan doesn't work, therefore it's nullified. It's flawed. And why should I follow if others haven't? Why should I do what you're asking me to do if those folks didn't do it? It seems like the whole thing needs to be tossed out and we start over again. Isn't it interesting that we're always quick to look to others for comparison to justify our own sin? Isn't it interesting how quick we are to say, well, yeah, you might have a point about me, but what about so-and-so? I've got a a high school hockey team this this year. Normally, I've I've got some of the younger ones, but I'm having a great time with this hockey team. But it's interesting in in coaching high school kids, uh, once again, which I haven't done for a while. Uh, you know, you, you pull a player aside and you go, no, if you, if you just would uh, take the puck this way and work it, you know, work it like this, you'll probably have, you know, better success. It'll probably work out for you a little bit better. And I got to tell you, nine out of 10 times, the response is not, oh, coach, thank you. I hadn't thought of it that way. The response is, well, what about so-and-so? He does it the same way. Really? So two of you are doing it wrong? Boy, that's a great defense for your activity. Or coach, I don't think this drill is working the way it should. You ought to do the drill differently. Anything other than to admit my culpability. Where do children get this attitude? From growing up in your house and my house. That's exactly where they get it. You're already laughing because it sounds an awful lot like mom and dad. Sounds an awful lot like the adults in their lives who say, you know, I got accused of this, but boy, if they only understood why I did this, they would know that it wasn't my fault. It's never my fault. When's the last time it was my fault? God, your planning is off. It can't have anything to do with me. And Paul says, since when does man's response dictate God's perfection? When does man's response dictate God's perfection or the lack thereof? I'm going to read you a quote from James Edwards, who's a modern-day theologian. He's a professor at Whitworth College in Washington brilliant mind, one of the best commentaries on, it's not a long commentary, but it's one of the best commentaries on Romans I've read in quite a while. Uh, And he speaks to this question of, of man's faithlessness and God's faithfulness and if God is flawed. And he says this, and it's a, it's a pretty good sized paragraph. So hang with me. To suggest that human faithlessness could make God faithless is to make God the object of an external and evil force. God is not a contingent being. That is, one whose actions depend on something outside of himself. God is an essential being whose actions are true to his character despite human response to it. And then he quotes the passage. Let God be true and every man a liar, says Paul. This statement is indebted to Psalm 116.11, which reads, And in my dismay I said, All men are liars. This was judged by Calvin to contain the primary axiom of all Christian philosophy. Calvin was right, but the statement means more than that. Verse 4 is not a philosophical abstraction of metaphysics and anthropology. 
It is a truth hammered out on the anvil of experience, a punishing truth that all are liars, and yet a liberating hope that God is true. Whatever we must concede about ourselves, and it will not be optimistic, we must confess that God is true. As Barth affirms, he is the answer, the helper, the judge, and the redeemer, not man. God is not a speculative truth, but a living and substantive truth who helps, aids, restores, and saves. It is precisely because God is not like us that he is able to help us. There's no faulty planning. There's only the rejection of God's grace and a self-defense that's found in this objection. The third objection is what I'm calling the that's not fair objection. Look at verses 5 through 7. And actually there are two questions in here that are kind of different sides of the same coin. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way, by no means. For then how could God judge the world? And then the second question, which is similar to the same, but if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? So Paul's kind of arguing from both sides. The first thing he says is, well, God can't punish me if my sin demonstrates his perfection. I mean, my sin is actually useful to God because it shows how great and how awesome God is. Our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God. That's a good thing, isn't it? It should be a little bit more unrighteous, and God can be proven to be a little more righteous. And then he kind of says the same thing, but a little bit different language. Through my lie, God's truth abounds. So God can't punish me if my lie reveals his truth. Now, both of these things are saying the same thing. They're saying my sin helps prove God's holiness. How can I then be to blame? Again, we shift it away from ourselves and we find fault with the character of God. God, you're just making yourself look good when you stand next to me. <laughs> it was my college coach. So everybody's good for something, even Rick's. He's good to be a bad example. <laughs> you know, it's like God says, you want to know how holy I am? Let me put Tom Ricks right here standing next to me and now you'll see how good I am. And, and, and we make God to be a petty God who is more consumed with, with people thinking he's good than caring about our salvation and any hope for mankind. That's not a glorious and good God. That's an evil, vindictive God. Paul says that objection, that it's not fair, how can I be to blame, is to look at God through the eyes of judgment and condemnation. Where does all of this lead? If we really try to think this way, even subconsciously from time to time. And I, and I understand that a lot of people in this room are disciples of Jesus say, well, no, I, I've put my faith in Christ. I've repented. I know that I'm a sinner. But every day, day in and day out, I, Christians are some of the most offensive people I've ever met in my life. I know that because I'm one of them. How does it work out daily? What happens when, when we offer ideas like, well, I was misled, so it's not my fault, or, or the planning wasn't what it should be, or it really isn't fair that all you're trying to do is make yourself look good when, you, when you're compared to me? Where could all this possibly lead? Well, it leads to the fourth objection, which I've called uh, the objection of absurdity. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 says this. And why not do evil that good may come? Paul says, okay, you want to run down this road? You want to judge the character of God? You You want to shift the blame away from yourself? Then take the argument to its natural conclusion. Its natural conclusion is that evil 
now becomes good. That literally we have flipped the entire message on its head. If you want to see a picture of this, I don't know if, uh, if any of you have had the opportunity. I think it came through town uh, about a year or so ago. Uh, we saw this show in Chicago at least five or six years ago. We actually saw the Broadway show. It was phenomenal. It was a great show. Uh, it's a musical, Wicked. I don't know if how many of you have seen Wicked. If you haven't seen Wicked and it comes to St. Louis, you need to see it. And if you, have, um, if you have middle school or high school kids, you need to make sure you take them as well because the whole premise of Wicked is that the whole good and evil is flipped on its, on its head. And it's a wonderful musical, and you find yourself snapping your fingers and singing along, and then about an hour later, I'm walking down the, the street on Michigan Avenue, and I went, wait a minute. <laughs> no, <laughs> that, that message is all wrong. There, there is no truth. It, it, good is bad. Bad is good. How, how did I get caught up in that? Paul says, it's absurd. But if you take it to its logical conclusion, it means that I, my sin is what I should do more and more and more because it shows God's complete moral purity. I'm going to help God look good, so I'm going to go sin as much as I possibly can. That makes as much sense as saying, you know what, I only beat my wife on Wednesdays and Saturdays, so you ought to pat me on the back the other five days of the week that I don't hurt her. It makes that much sense. Friends, do you see the length to which we are willing to go to reject the notion that we are culpable for our sin? Do you see the strident desire for self-righteousness instead of the righteousness that comes to us by grace through the cross of Christ. Because you see, this passage of Scripture and this message this morning is not a detailed answer to all these objections. It's simply an introduction. The whole book of Romans is a a detailed answer to these objections, and we will come back to this from time to time. Paul offers a couple of brief rebuttals here, but he'll really address it more fully in the next several chapters. But today, the question really is this. What do these objections reveal about our hearts? What is this, if I feel this way sometimes, if I justify myself by finding fault with God, what does that say about my human condition? I think it says this. I think it says that we detest moral accountability, that we absolutely loathe the idea of someone calling us to account, and we will go to any length to prove our innocence, even if it means attacking the grace and the character of God. It's as if I would rather die than admit God's assessment of my wretched condition as being correct. The last thing I want to do in my heart, and, and, and I think maybe some others would join me in this, the last thing we want to do is go back to chapter 1 and say, yeah, that, that describes me. That inventor of evil, that, that malicious person, that gossip, that slander, that hater, that, that the person who murders people in their heart, maybe not physically, but yeah, that's me. I would rather die than admit that. We want salvation without owning our sin. I say, God, come and help me, but gee, don't be so judgmental. I mean, you're being kind of hard on me. The application this morning is the reflection into my own heart. 